Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. We're podcasting from Northeast Ohio. This is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series, Race and Democracy in Northeast Ohio, a collaboration with the School of Peace and Conflict Studies and the Center for Pan-African Culture at Kent State University. The project includes a 10-podcast episode series focused specifically on the intersections of race and democracy in Northeast Ohio. We're also planning community workshops on the topic of race and democracy and developing online curricular materials, such as activities, toolkits, and concept pages. This series is made possible with funding from Mark Lewine and the John Gray Painter Program. Check out our website to learn more about our upcoming events and stay up to date on new content. You can find us at www.growingdemocracyoh.org. I'm really excited to be here today with you, Anuj. Oh, so same here. I'm very excited to be part of the podcast and just to be able to, you know, have conversation, understand more uh, about people, their backgrounds, where they come from, just the diversity of stories, you know. Yeah, I mean, so it's your second time on the podcast, right? And this time, it's not like Casey and I interviewing you as new co-hosts, but like, you get to co-host. It's really exciting to like be doing this with somebody else and kind of to kind of mix everything up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I must say, I've learned a lot from podcasts uh, <laughs> past few years, uh, you know, like podcasts, uh, you know, they're just very interesting medium, uh, I feel like, right? So just to be able to be on the other side, asking questions, uh, you know, posing inquiries, uh, it's, it's, the dork in me is like very excited. Yeah. What can I say? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I, well, and it's great too because um, this first episode I think we alluded to it in the last kind of intro episode, but this episode is about storytelling, right? And we mm-hmm. thought it would be really important to kind of start the series on race and democracy with an episode on storytelling and like the mm-hmm. power of storytelling. But I think you just alluded to like that podcasts themselves are a really great platform mm-hmm. for storytelling. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do not know when podcasts became cool. Uh, you know, I just remember thinking like, oh, podcast, right? I can listen to something while I'm walking or while I'm not paying attention, uh, while I'm running. But then I remember being totally uh, absorbed in the story to the point where I was like, what am I supposed to do? Like, am I walking? <laughs> am I just listening? You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who talk about the, the way technology changing, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think one good thing about the technology is that we have access to so many stories and podcasts yeah. is a great example of that, right? Uh, the fact that there are so many yeah. people who are willing to listen to uh, stories uh, that they might generally not, uh, you know, be interested or not be able to find, uh, you know, just going on uh, news websites or social media, right? Like I think podcasts, Mm-hmm. allows you like you know to find those really really cool stories uh, you know i mean i'm yeah and it humanizes issues right so i i mean mm-hmm. i you know remarkably race and democracy are somehow controversial issues mm-hmm. i feel like in this kind of idealized world they wouldn't be but in reality 
in our, mm-hmm. in our, in our current context. Um, it is. Um, and to have conversations around race and democracy is challenging. And so to have a platform where we can talk about stories and, and raise and amplify other people's stories, uh, I think is a really unique opportunity for us. And so it's really exciting to have you join us for this, this uh, kind of new journey, I guess. Yeah. Uh, like like I said, always uh, been uh, very fascinated just to be part of this journey. Um, in terms of race and democracy, uh, something I've always uh, noticed is that there is the conversation on democracy, uh, the way we see it from a very macro scale, right? Like where, where the power is, mm-hmm. where the decisions are being made. Uh, but then there is democracy and participation at the at the bottom level, right? Which which is more fascinating, yeah. uh, I think, right? Yeah, and, for sure. And hopefully, hopefully we can capture a lot of the those diverse kind of stories, uh, in terms of first of all how power affects people, right? Uh, you know, there are yeah. people who make yeah. decisions, but there are people who are affected, uh, possibly in a positive way, possibly adversely, uh, from those decisions and how they adapt to it. You know. Um, yeah, I come from a country absolutely. where, you know, there, there's very little power, there's very little participation uh, among common individuals, right? Like for them, democracy mm-hmm. just means voting once every few years and then just be done mm-hmm. with it. But I think um, in America, yeah. especially in the last few years, uh, you know, I think there is more of a room, there's more of space to talk about things, you know, you know, let's talk about yeah. diverse stories. I know. Let's talk about how we're being afflicted yeah. or we're being affected uh, by these decisions and structures, right? Uh, so, you know, yeah. I, I really look forward to sort of uncovering or unpeeling all these layers of how people are being affected. Yeah. That's. I mean, I think that's a fantastic kind of opening um, to introduce uh, today's. Panel or panelist, goodness gracious, today's <laughs> guest um, we have with us, Elaine Zhao. Elaine joined the School of Peace and Conflict Studies faculty in fall 2021 with a focus in international development and environmental peace building. She's a critical socio-legal scholar and political ecologist, integrating peace and conflict studies with transboundary conservation and protected areas, indigenous and community governance, human rights and rights of nature, and development alternatives. Much of her work seeks to address conflicts in conservation, for example, human protected area conflicts, human wildlife conflicts, conservation in places of conflict, for example, conflict sensitive and conflict resilient conservation, and conflict resolution through conservation, environmental peace building, for example. We're super excited to have you with us today, Elaine. Thank you. I'm excited to be with you guys. So we're really excited to have you here. Um, this is our first episode of this series, right? So we're focusing on race and democracy. I'm, you know, here with Anuj, who's my my new co-host for this series. And, you know, we wanted to start the, the kind of the series of 10 episodes on the topic of storytelling. 
and I, you know, I know that I just read your bio, but it would be really great to get a sense of who you are from you. Um, so Charlie Rose once said, if you want to communicate powerfully, tell a story. So Elaine, what's your story? Um, I always think this is such an interesting question. And then there's this small part of my brain that's, that's, well, who is this person that I'm talking to and what's the story that I should tell them? You know, <laughs> there are different things about our story and different ways we can tell that story that uh, in that moment, in that place, in that context and with the people that we're with change, you know, and so, um, but then there are things about ourselves that, that don't, you know, there's me, I'm a child of Taiwanese immigrants um, who met in Indiana, and so that's where I was born, and then I grew up in California, and then I went on, and many, many years of school later, here I am. <laughs> here um, in Ohio with us. <laughs> exactly, in Kent, Ohio, and my work is on environment, environmental peace building, so I look at environmental conflicts, conflicts and conservation, those kinds of intersections. Um, those are my areas of passion. And that's what brought me to Ohio. Um, yeah, and with our story, you know, it's always uh, how much do we tell? But, yeah, absolutely. I always think that's the, that's the challenge, right? And I think you, you know, quite eloquently stated it, right, is how you tell your story depends on uh, the context in which you've been asked um, to tell your story. So in terms of like, can I just really quickly follow up? Just how long have you been in Ohio, right? I, I mean, you just started with the School of Peace and Conflict Study in fall of 2021, but when was the first time you were in Ohio? The first time I was in Ohio was my campus visit um, right around Independence Day, July 5th, I think I arrived. Um, and I was here for about a week and then I came back uh, kind of end of August. And so I've been here about a month. Yeah, I'm very new. <laughs> uh, so let me pivot a little bit to your scholarship uh, and then in the context of storytelling. Right. So, again, like based on what I understand about you and, and the work you do, I, I believe your work meets at the intersections of, you know, environmental conservation, uh, there's legal scholarship involved, and there's conflict resolution and peace building as well, right? So I was curious, uh, by the way, I find all of that very fascinating, like, like how they intersect in your research, right? So I was wondering if you could tell us what role storytelling uh, plays uh, in your scholarship. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I, as any researcher, um, especially someone who does kind of qualitative research that involves interviews, you know, our job is to go and collect stories. We go and we talk to people on the ground and the places that are involved in the issues that we're in interested in, that intersection of, of environment, peace, conflict, whatever it might be. Um, and, and then we go around and listen to the different stories that are out there and then try to put forward something that connects the stories on the ground to the theories in the field and make sense of it in some way or another. Um, and then I think also with research, sometimes we have a little bit of an agenda. Maybe there's a particular story we're trying to give extra voice to. And so through our research, we can elevate 
stories in tiny villages in remote places and put them into the international forum. You know, and then there's, of course, also storytelling um, that's involved in just communicating our research as, as we're producing it or after we're producing it. So I have a quick follow-up. Earlier you said that, you know, you are involved and your research focuses on environmental peace building. What is environmental peace building? <laughs> that's always a great question. Yeah, if I'm going to give you kind of the theory version of that, environmental peace building is, is it basically emerges out of this, out of the field of environmental security, looking at peace and conflict resolution through the environment. So it's this idea that um, instead of the environment or natural resources or things like that being a driver of conflict, we can look at the environment as a space of common interest, something which can bring people together to cooperate. And through that cooperation or that kind of collaboration, people form a habit of working together and problem solving collaboratively. And so then you can have the peace building dividends in a way, the out the benefits of the peace building that can spill over into other areas of conflict or, or problem solving. Thank you. Uh, I had a quick follow-up to that, uh, if that's okay. So, again, uh, within that context, I was curious, uh, first of all, the way you describe environmental peace building, right? Uh, what kind of stories, uh, you know, you, could, you would tell our listeners in terms of trying to make sense or mm-hmm. trying to give them a better sense of what env- environmental peace building is? And why are these stories important, you know, especially as we move forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kinds of stories that I think emerge in environmental peace building are often, um, you know, telling the story of how the environment is a factor in a conflict. You know, for example, you can take almost any kind, any conflict and think about where the environmental dimensions, um, whether that's a social justice issue, you have a small community, poor and rural, and then some big extractive industry comes in and it depletes not only the resources, but destroys the environment in the process. Um, all kinds of hazardous waste, runoff, pollution, whatever it might be that's involved. Um, and that creates a conflict between the community and the extractives or something like that. You know, and that's a social conflict with an environmental dimension. Or, you know, we can think about big global armed conflicts, you know, interstate wars where there might be an environmental dimension, um, a fight over resources like oil, or gas, or mining-related minerals. Um, and then to tell the other side of that, you know, to give cases or stories of places where those, you know, either the conflict resource or the resource conflict is transformed through some sort of uh, initiative around maybe the protection of the resources or the environment or um, stopping the environmental degradation that's happening. Mm. So, you know, the, the stories in environmental peace building are often, okay, we can look at the conflict aspect and the environment as a driver, a push factor in conflict, or we can look at it as something which could transform the conflict, change the conflict, or resolve the conflict. Thank you. Uh, that's very fascinating. Uh, I know you talked about uh, different uh, sort of uh, facets, you know, including the social facet, uh, you know, environmental facet, uh, the political conflict facet, and so on, right? 
Uh, so for a lot of us, including me, storytelling is about uh, human connections, right? I, I think storytelling has this great uh, ability to uh, connect human beings, uh, no matter where you are, regardless of your environments, right? And I know from our previous conversation, you've traveled quite a bit, you know, uh, to different societies, uh, to different settings. So uh, I was I was wondering, from your own experience, have you seen, uh, you know, how storytelling has led to the, these human connections uh, as you travel, as a researcher, and as an indiv- individual? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I think that it comes up in many ways. As a researcher, obviously, um, one of the first things that I do is tell my story to whoever it is that I might be working with. You know, who am I? Why am I here? <laughs> what am I here to do? What's that story um, brings me to that place? And then that helps people to understand, well, what is it that I'm doing and maybe how they can be a part of it. Yeah, so, you know, as I present myself as a researcher or as a human and why am I doing this research to people that I interact with in my travels or my work abroad, well, it helps them to understand who I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then that connects, you know, that creates the human connection and it becomes something that says, oh, well, yes, I'm. I'm doing something related to that. And so, of course, we're going to have a conversation or we're going to do an interview or we're going to work together on a project. And then I think also, you know, whenever we're doing, whenever we're working together or in new places, it's the stories that we carry with us that, I don't know, it gets, I guess it helps us to, um, to relate to people. You know, there might be something in my story that they can understand. Uh, and then it makes it, you know, either makes me more approachable or, um, you know, someone that they want to be engaging with or something like that, um, whether it's for the research that I'm doing or not, you know, just on a human level. Absolutely. I mean, I'm also a qualitative scholar, though my work, you know, takes place in different, with different foci and in different areas, that the kind of that response resonates a lot with me in terms of storytelling as both a way of collecting data i'm using air quotes here for like collecting data but also as a way of building that trust and that sense of community with the people that you are engaging in research with very much so but i i do have a question so you know the growing democracy project kind of broadly um is around kind of grassroots very local work and this series in particular um you know our focus is on race and democracy in northeast ohio and i know we want to talk a little bit more about your move to ohio and a little bit about that in a little bit but i wanted to ask how your work in other areas of the world influences how you know how you see that kind of what the relationship is with you know Northeast Ohio. I don't know if I'm ans- asking that question in any sort of <laughs> like coherent way, but do you know, um, like in many ways you do international work, but you know, so much of what you're telling has, you know, richness and value locally too. Yeah, definitely. I look at this move to Ohio as, you know, no different really from my move to anywhere else in the world, whether that's Rwanda or Uganda, um, the England and Taiwan or wherever it is, Central America that I've spent some time, you know, it's, I don't feel like it's so, so different. Obviously it's a part of the U S that I've never 
lived in and so you know people tell me about the winters and the gray and the snow and it's a little bit daunting Um, but you know I feel like the work that I do in other parts of wherever it might be it's going to resonate here as well whether that's looking at social justice issues or community conservation um, environmental conflicts anything really it's going to play out here in its own way and so you know this is an opportunity for me to learn about what are the issues locally that connect to the bigger global issues Um, so many times you see parallels I think between communities around the world and so I just wanted to say it's more of a comment I I love that response you know I'm an immigrant right and I've lived in different places and I do get asked questions why Ohio out of all places why not (laughs) this is where the opportunity is right and I think this is this is where uh, Elaine is going to bring her um, like cosmopolitan sort of global perspective and um, to to the residents of Ohio so you're an expert in resilience and peace could I suppose my question is how do you the storytelling um, in any iteration that we've talked about, right, um, as a tool for shaping democracy. And do you, I mean, maybe a better question is, do you see storytelling as a tool for shaping democracy? Oh, yeah, def- definitely. <laughs> I mean, democracy for me is all about, it's, all, it's got so much to do with representation and people feeling represented you know, that their voice is there or that their interests and values are there. And that means that stories have to be told. And sometimes it means also picking apart the dominant story and nuancing it and making it much more messy and complex and, you know, having different stories that, can help people to think about issues in new lights and ways um, and maybe even change their views about things um, that need to happen at whether it's the local political level or at the national or international level. Um, So I think storytelling is, is so powerful in terms of healthy democracies and growing democracy. Yeah. um, So I, I think that's a very interesting answer. So, as I'm going to talk a little bit of my own experience here, right? Uh, in the past year, we've seen quite a bit of uh, organization in terms of democracy, right? And I love that you talk about how democracy can be messy, how democracy can mean, uh, you know, a variety of different things to people, right? And I think within that context, uh, all the Black Lives Matter movement uh, uh, or the, the demonstration that was trying to represent the suppressed voices of Asian immigrants, right? I thought those are very, very important movements uh, in, in the past here. And which, for, and I, f- I feel, you know, in a lot of ways, a lot of us felt seen, right? Like, yes, you know, uh, we are here too, right? Uh, so, and and I know that this, this might be putting in the spot, uh, maybe sort of an unfair way, right? So based on your research, based on your experiences, uh, right? Uh, what would you communicate to our activists uh, who are trying to talk about democracy, right? Who are trying to talk about representation, uh, whether it's based on their race, ethnicity, uh, immigration status? Well, what you just 
mentioned in Rouge, what it really reminds me of actually is is how much um, storytelling in the practice of democracy is so similar actually to truth and reconciliation processes. You know, that this is, it, that's what truth and reconciliation is all about, is all of these people who maybe have been victims of social injustice or have been parts of, you know, maybe there's a, if we're going to bring back the peace and conflict angle, they have their version of the conflicts that they're involved in. It's their opportunity to tell their side, their story, their version of whatever that truth is. And there's my air quotes around truth, right? Because our truths are so varied. And that's where storytelling comes in and it allows people to, to bring that other dimensions of the truth out, right? So just like I was saying earlier about that democratic or democracy as a process being messy, it's the same with truth, right? And revealing truth is a messy process, but storytelling is essential to that. I am so glad that you brought up Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right? Uh, as somebody whose uh, country wanted to have a TRC or Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but never did for a variety of reasons. And as somebody who actually got to witness the Gachacha courts uh, in Rwanda, I think it is a fascinating uh, sort of uh, meditation not on not only democracy but also how you can dispense justice and storytelling right could i ask you to sort of describe and explain what truth and reconciliation commission is uh, to our listeners i can give you maybe my version of my interpretation of a truth and reconciliation process because i think that these happen obviously in these very formal arrangements like you mentioned the gachacha um but also in our own communities, we have many versions of truth and reconciliation sometimes, you know, and we don't maybe call it that, but I think that that's a little bit of what we're actually driving at in the process of the storytelling and trying to hear the different sides of things that happen. And one of the things that I've, uh, actually it happened when I went to a talk or a panel on witness the idea of witnessing in the truth and reconciliation processes with indigenous first nations in canada and what i learned that always stuck with me from that that session is that this idea of witnessing is not just about you know maybe we think about i witnessed an event i saw something happen um, but actually it also means to tell the story of what happened to witness an event means I saw it happen and I'm going to tell somebody about it. I'm going to tell my story of that event. And then uh, the other layer of that is for the people who then listen to that story, they now are witnesses to the story. <laughs> and then once you become a witness to a story, whether you were the first person at the event or the one who heard the story, you have a responsibility to tell that story. Uh, and that was something that I found so powerful and interesting, you know. And so, you know, in these indigenous truth and reconciliation processes in Canada, there's a lot of people telling the, about their experiences with residential schools. Um, and that's, you know, very similar to what's happened in the U.S. history. You know, Native American children, in that case, First Nations children taken from their families and their homes and their communities and put into mostly often religious schools and forced to speak a particular language, change their look and language and behavior um, in all the ways that could suppress their culture. 
And, and, you know, little by little, people are coming out and now telling their experience of residential school. Um, and now, as someone who's heard that story, I have to tell others about the residential schools. That's the responsibility that I carry now as a witness of that story. And so for me, truth and reconciliation is not just the opportunity for people to share their own experience in the situation, the injustice, the conflict, et cetera, that they experience, but for all of us as a humanity or as a society or as part of their community to continue to tell that story so that it can be a part of the social healing process. So for me, that's kind of what truth and reconciliation gets at. Thank you. Um, for me, I love how you made or you describe witnessing as if something so positive uh, and dynamic, uh, right? And which which made me think. And recently, I've been uh, reading about technology uh, and the future, and how it is terrifying and exciting at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So, and so the more we get immersed into the world of social media, right? And I think witnessing has also become more available, right? So in a way, it allows you to tell your story and also witness and be part of that story, right? So I was curious, and again, I know I'm just throwing you a random question here, uh, but you know, so in your sort of experience and research, how do you think uh, social media will sort of align with uh, witnessing uh, as we move in the future, especially in relation to conflict and peace building? Yeah. Question. I think what it what springs to mind for me immediately is actually Standing Rock, just a few years ago, and the the, the conflict around the pipeline. You know, it was something. Social media was used as such a huge tool in that conflict. You know, not just to so to turn it from something that was you know a, a group of indigenous people in a place that many people have never heard of or thought about their conflict with the pipeline. Um, construction to turn it into something that became a global movement. It was all about social media, you know, for them to get their story out, like we're talking about stories. They were putting up videos and posts on, on Facebook and everything, every channel that you could think of. And then also once they were there, you know, in the, the camps that, that were um, put up, they were constantly sharing out videos every day about what was happening. And then when the violence came in with the law enforcement and things like that, suddenly people all around the world could see what was happening. They could see with their own eyes with the videos that were being posted live on social media instead of this being something in the news or maybe not ever hitting your radar. You know, and I think in that case, social media had a huge and powerful role to play in, in getting that story out um, in a certain, you know, that's kind of one of the big environmental conflicts, if you want to talk about it like that, in the U.S. in the more recent years. Absolutely. And actually, so um, some of my research was in Flint, and some of that was happening at the same time. So there was, there were, there were you know, activists in in Detroit and Flint who would go to Standing Rock, right? And so the worlds were able to come together dealing with very different conflicts, um, ostensibly very different, but uh, kind of the experience felt so similar, right? That, the, that through this 
I mean, maybe I'm put. I don't want to put words in their mouth, but the way that I think about it is like through the sharing of these stories um, of this happened to me here and this happened to me there. You can also kind of see solidarity networks build um, across difference in many ways. I that that went a completely different direction than what I was planning to ask you about, but <laughs> I like kind of love this con- like series of questions and conversation. But I do have a question about, you know, kind of going back to your decision to move to Northeast Ohio. Mm-hmm. You've already said, right, Northeast Ohio in many ways is like so many other places. But in the midst of your decision to move, um, Northeast Ohio is dealing with kind of anti-Asian racism. And it was something that I know based on some conversations. So that was, there was, it was a real, it's a real thing. Um, How did you kind of think through that decision and how did you kind of navigate what that might look like to, to make a decision to move and build a career here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely came up for me in the consideration around, um, especially in the interview process and then in actually being lucky enough to get an offer, you know, I had to actually think about it. This. And I asked about it, actually, in my interview. Some of the other faculty asked, well, what is it that I want to know about Ohio, maybe, or life here? And I said, okay, well, <laughs> uh, one of the most obvious things is that I am and look of a particular race. And this is something that across the U.S. is problematic right now. And I have, I've been living outside of the U.S. for some years, actually. And so... I've been kind of watching from afar what's happening and hearing from my friends in different cities or towns across the country about their own fears around walking down the street or going to the grocery store or whatever it might be. And oftentimes, you know, looking at that stuff from afar can make it seem a lot scarier. And so I did want to know whether or not this was something I needed to think about and be worried about. Was this something that could come up manifest itself physically (laughs) in my day-to-day life yeah so I did ask that and I do think that uh you know to give credit to all of my colleagues at the school of peace and conflict studies I have to really thank them for their response because they did not bury the problem they didn't try to you know tone it down or hide any possibility of it being a present and real problem um but they all offered their support in different ways for if if a circumstance did happen, you know, or even just to help me pick the neighborhood to live in so that it wouldn't be part of my everyday walk home, you know. Yeah, and so I think that those were the kinds of responses that helped me in making the decision to come, to know that I wouldn't face issues like that alone. It also helped to know that there were people like Anuj and Tuts and you know, others <laughs> in the Kent community who look like me and have managed just fine and, and, and that this is part of the community work that they're here to do. Well, the feeling is mutual. I was very excited uh, that you were coming to Kent, Ohio, you know, to add to uh, the diverse representation uh, of our <laughs> university, you know. So I think representation does matter, right? And sort of that goes along with the storytelling, the different uh, storytelling from diverse groups, right? Which I think, I mean, in my opinion, is becoming a little more accessible uh, with time, uh, right? 
Uh, so I guess for my next question, I would say we talked about, you know, race, democracy and storytelling. And you shared some very, very fascinating uh, insights. Uh, incredible. So in that context, uh, my question would be sort of a broad one. Right. So if you're imagining or if you're thinking about future uh, in the context of race, democracy, identity and storytelling. Right. Uh, what is it something that you may be looking forward to or even dreading for that matter? Right. When, when you think about future in general. Yeah. <laughs> um, hmm. We like small questions here, just really small, <laughs> not giant. <laughs> you, okay. So if we're talking about storytelling in the context of the future of issues related to race and democracy, et cetera. I think one of the things that has been encouraging is just how many people are stepping forward with their stories. It can seem really overwhelming and kind of depressing and traumatic to hear all the stories related to race and democracy and issues of injustice in the United States, especially. But I have to say that if, you know, and I, I know a lot of people hate that, you know, when we kind of try to find the silver lining of things that are really ugly, but there is one thing and that is that people are able to tell that story and we're listening, you know, suddenly more and more, it's like we're hearing all these stories and things that people have never thought about are suddenly in their face as this is real and this has happened to somebody I know or something like that. And so, you know, if I'm going to be that sort of idealist peace studies person, um, I have to say that as difficult as it can be to hear all of these things, I'm glad that we're hearing about it um, because that's going to be the step towards doing something. And, and then also in those stories, right, is partly, well, what did people do about the situation they experienced? How did they respond to an issue of racism or discrimination or an incidence of maybe even violent racism? And what did their community do to protect them, et cetera, et cetera? And then these are the stories also that we can be learning from and that can help us to co-create a better world where you know, there's more representation and equity in our democracy. I absolutely love that answer. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I feel inspired. We're gonna be quoting you here shortly. <laughs> so I have one final question and it's you know kind of just a wrap up. Uh, you know, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with? <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I guess the most important thing maybe in this context and the theme of everything that we've been talking about tonight is to really find the courage to tell each of our stories, put it out there into the sphere of things people need to know. And then, like I was saying earlier about that idea of witness is to amplify the stories that need, need so badly to be told more often um, and told in new ways. And then, you know, in that process, I think that one of the things that I would love, love, love to see so much more of 
is not just a critique of what is wrong, but what is the vision we want to see. So, you know, a lot of times it's just this flip in the language to say, oh, I hate that this is happening. Instead of saying, you know what I would love to see is X, Y, and Z, you know? So that's kind of, I think, you know, the bravery in the storytelling and then also telling the story in a way that, that puts out there into the world the wish that we want, you know, um, to vocalize it publicly, I think is something I would love to see more of. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank yeah, you. That is beautiful. Um, that is very inspirational and insightful. Yeah. I hope it's good for everyone else as well. And um, yeah, thanks again for having me and letting me share a little bit. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Ashley. And this week I was joined by our new co-host, Anuj. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio in Cleveland, Ohio. This series is supported by Mark Lewine and the John Gray Painter Program. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the podcast, as well as get behind-the-scenes access, live chat, and swag featuring designs by Donuts and Coffee, head over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about race and democracy in Northeast Ohio.